Owen Colfer is the internationally best-selling author of the Artemis Fowl series, as well as the Warp novels, Imaginary Fred with Oliver Jeffers, the award-winning The Dog Who Lost His Bark with PJ Lynch, and Another Thing, the authorised sequel to Douglas Adams' The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series, several standalones and two adult crime novels, including Plugged, which was shortlisted for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. And Owen's latest book is High Fire. Owen, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, this book is billed um, heavily on the promotional literature as your first adult fantasy novel. Yeah. But as we've just yeah, discovered, yeah. it's not your first adult novel. No. Um, so I guess I want to get straight into the protagonist of this book is a 15-year-old boy. Artemis yeah. Fowl starts off as a yeah. as a 12-year-old boy. So so when you're setting down to write this book and you've got, I'm going to write an adult fantasy novel in your head. Oh, actually, let's do this the other way around. If, if you were writing this novel for young people yeah. what are the considerations that you need to make that you don't have to if you're sitting down to write an adult well novel? it's fun- funnily this started out as a novel for young people um and i think the setup is quite classic why a grumpy old guy meets uh you know damaged kid and both heal each other so that's how it started and so i began to write it like that and but then the dragon now i've often heard writers say that they're not responsible that these things come to them but what they mean is that their subconscious has figured out something before their conscious has. And my subconscious figured out that this is not really working as a kid's book. But if you let the dragon off the leash a little bit and make it a bit scatological, um, it could be a very funny adult book. And so that's what I did. And then having arrived at that conclusion, you have to ask yourself, so what is allowed now that wasn't allowed before? And obviously you can use uh, what would be considered profane language. If you want, you can have references to uber violence if you want, possibly drugs. And of course, you can have sex if you want to have it. All my other books for kids are all prepubescent. So I managed to sidestep a lot of the problems that you can get yourself into or issues that I didn't really want to deal with. I kind of wanted to be in the R.L. Stevenson arena where it's a big adventure story. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you can have friends, but they won't be boyfriends or girlfriends. You know, it'll just be... Friendship. So, and that was great. And with this, I kind of did the same thing. I had a, a dragon who wasn't getting a girlfriend and a 15 year old who didn't want one. So it was just all, it very much has the setup of a kid's book. And it would take very little to make this back into a kid's book, really. You could just take out two or three episodes. And actually, you wouldn't have to take them out. You would just kind of tone them down a little bit. Some grisly deaths. Yeah, like the, some of the deaths are quite grisly. And you, um, yeah, you you can just take those out, or maybe they could like die off camera, as they say, and then it would take very little effort uh, to do that. I, I think they showed that with the movie Deadpool, where it was very profane, and with very little, little effort, they made a PG kind of uh, one because really the humor in this is sadly juvenile, as I <laughs> as I am myself, you know. But there's so there's a lot of people who won't like this. I mean, it won't be for them. Uh, And you'd be right, like it's not, you know, it's not War and Peace. It's, this is, I think if you like Star Wars, if you like comic books, you might like this. I mean, to be fair, if someone wrote War and Peace with a dragon, I'd read that. (laughs) War and Peace is, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking on the way and other things, like, you know, a 
adult novel, like a yeah. you know, a contemporary state of the nation novel about two divorced middle class people in London, yeah. but with a dragon. Yeah, I think you can just draw. <laughs> it's like an egg. It makes every situation better if you have an egg, fried egg. So it's the same with the dragon. If your day is getting a bit grim, just drop a dragon in uh, and, and it livens things up considerably. Is there also some sort of... I've, I've taken note of young adult Twitter. Yeah. And it, God, it's a minefield. Yeah. And I wonder, that's what I was sort of early into as well. Is there something as well as just being the more space? Yeah. Something freeing about setting down to write an adult novel and not having to sort of worry about... Yeah. Uh, YA uh, especially has really changed in the last 20 years. And uh, I, I suppose I'm from an older school. I'm 54 now, so... When I was first published, which is over 20 years ago, there really wasn't the same focus on inclusivity there is now, which is brilliant. But I'm kind of too old to jump on that train. You know, I, I'm not going to try and write about an inclusive book about a lot of characters I don't know. So I, I think that would be appropriation, whereas writing about a dragon is fine. You know, anyone can have a go at a dragon and you can read into that what you want to read into that. But uh, I was on a stage recently on Book Expo America uh, and I was uh, like, that's the biggest gig for a writer in the States uh, to do the author's breakfast. And on the stage with me, there was Lupita Nyong'o, who had written a book about having dark, dark skin and had that's a problem. And people with lighter, dark skin have an easier time generally. And that's quite hurtful to her. So she had written and people were weeping buckets at that. And right. And me, too. And then there were the Bush twins. Uh, who who are very, very much at the forefront of feminism in America. And then there was Da Chen, whose parents died in the Chinese Revolution. And then there was me last. I was thinking, what am I? Like, I look at me. I'm like Mr. Patriarchy. And I'm talking about leprechauns. I was just thinking, oh, writing has changed. <laughs> so I, I was wondering, did they put me up here to be like the focus <laughs> of everyone's discontentment? But as it turned out, it was fine. But it just shows you how writing... At one point, when I did that panel 10 years ago, everyone looked like me. Like there was me, there was Neil Gaiman, there was Sherman Alexie, there was a couple other people, John Cheska, and then there was... Judy Bloom was the solitary lady, and obviously she's unbelievably talented. But now it's just totally flipped, where people really take care who goes on these panels. I think the BBC are kind of following that with their Radio 4 programmes, which is great to see. But it has changed. And if you're an old dog, you really have to be careful that you don't want to put your foot in anything. But it's so easy. And I'll, gi- and I'll give you an example of that. People think they really know what's going on. But there are phrases out there that I would not be aware are offensive. For example, I did a play two years ago with a wonderful actor, Don Witcherly, about a friend of mine who had MS and was considering suicide. Uh, and it's it's probably the funniest thing I've ever written because my whole point was when you have a condition, you don't become that condition. You are still the guy or the girl you used to be in there. You can still be funny. Uh, you can still be whatever you used to be. And that was my point, that this guy, Deck, who's my friend, and he still is, uh, and he's doing really well. He was still the funniest man in the room all the time, and he would make fun of his own problems brilliantly in a way that you can't really do if you don't have that problem. So I wrote this play about that, and I was doing an interview uh, and I used the term committing suicide. And I got a few letters to say, we don't like that term if we've lost someone in our family uh, because committing uh, implies there's a crime involved there. So Which it was once upon yeah, a time. Yeah, exactly. It was a crime against man and God, you know. So I had used that term several times, not thinking for a minute. And of course, then I immediately changed it. I just, you know, what, what term would you like to hear? 
and we just you know we just take their own lives so that's that's the phrase but there's stuff like that in every conversation that a guy like me who lives in you know lived in the countryside in Wexford or in Ireland for most of his life just doesn't know so this is a nice way to avoid all that because hopefully no one can get offended at a dragon book this is a, a dragon that likes flash dance a dragon I mean who who wouldn't like that <laughs> <laughs> but we'll see. I'm sure someone won't. I'm sure someone won't. Um, I want to go through the, I guess, the three main characters. Our main protagonist, as I've already said, is um, is a 15 year old lad, Everett Squibb yeah. Moreau. Yeah. Um, tell us something about him. Who he is? Well, Everett Squibb Moreau is on the, the verge of being a young man, and uh, in me, in my mind, he's a spiritual uh, descendant of Huck Finn. So he's the kind of tear away who doesn't really see consequences. He's looking for that quick fix. And in this case, what needs to be fixed is he needs to get himself and his mother away from where they live because the local constable has his eyes uh, on uh, Squibb's mother and also his stepdad has let off a lot of gambling debts. So Squibb sees a way to get out of this by looking for, working for the local moonshine runner, which goes terribly wrong. So he's a, he's got a heart of gold. I think he's a good guy. He loves his mom, But like many teenagers, he doesn't really put much thought into how he's going to achieve this. It's like quick money. That's what he wants. So he's our hero, if you like. And he's a Cajun boy from uh, just outside New Orleans. He has Irish and Texas descent as well. So it's, kind of, it's a very combustible mix. And so he's our everyman in the situation. And, and then on, he's flanked by the other two characters, uh, Vern the dragon, who is not the dragons we're used to. He's not the Game of Thrones dragon. In fact, he's very, he has quite a lot of contempt for He's contemptuous of that dragon. Or how those dragons are presented (laughs) as kind of servants. He doesn't like that at all. And I I think that's nice because we're all, I mean, especially Irish people, we're, we don't like how we were presented maybe in New York in the, in the late, uh, or in late 19th century. Um, You can see the cartoons of Irish people just fighting and drunk and, uh, so we didn't like that and I thought Vern would feel that he's just seen all these representations of himself uh, and he hates it Cause, because really he's just kind of a normal guy really he just, he's just trying to stay alive and keep out of the way and have the odd cocktail and, and watch Netflix so he's not swooping over villages destroying everything uh, and he doesn't have familiars and he doesn't go to sleep on a mountain of gold he's just uh, he's kind of a, out in the countryside uh, hiding out with the alligators. Although he did once upon a time do all of those things. Once upon a time, yes, things were different and the dragons ruled the earth. Uh, but the humans got smart and uh, they took the dragons down. And Vern reckons, and he might be he he might be correct in this unless there's a sequel, he reckons that he's the last dragon uh, and he just wants to stay alive in peace until he, he runs into Squib. And then, I mean, the book is centred around... A literal monster yeah. as well. And, and I'm talking about Regent Sock here, that constable yeah. that you mentioned. He's an incredible creation. Tell us something about him, Where something about his background, I guess, his father. Yeah. His father was a preacher uh, in Florida and he kind of tried to beat Jesus into Regents and Regents was troubled from uh, the word go. And everything he does is almost despite the ghost of his father who told him, you know, bad guys never prosper and blessed are the meek. So every time... Something good happens to him as a result of his criminal ways. He It's like two fingers to his dad up in heaven or wherever he, he used to be. And eventually he ended up killing his father just to get get out from under his thumb. But what I like about Regents is that uh, he knows he's the bad guy. Most bad guys don't know they're the bad guy. They think, well, I'm the hero of my own story. 
but Regents has no qualms about being the bad guy and what he will do to further his own goals. And like many of the bad guys, he has kind of a twisted sense of humour, which I like. I think Hannibal Lecter was the one of the leading proponents of that in the original book, which is a masterclass on how to write a thriller. So and I named him Regent's Hook after Captain Hook, which I thought would be, he's like one rank down. <laughs> he's only a constable. Uh, Captain Hook, I think, in, in my opinion, is one of the greatest literary villains ever because you feel a little bit of sympathy for mm-hmm. him. And even though he's a monster, you kind of feel, well, maybe they, he could make it up with Peter Pan. And, but he never does, obviously. And Hook is a little bit like that, except that he doesn't want to ever be the good guy. He's just determined to go being the bad guy until he's killed. And that's his plan. So he's like a teenager in a way in that he doesn't have a long-term plan. Well, he he kind of does, but it's a very ridiculously grand grandiose plan that he's going to take over running weapons to New York it, it's just crazy so obviously well that doesn't come to pass I don't want to be a sp- I don't want to give away any spoilers but yeah things get complicated for regions well I mean we're talking about him as a villain that is criminal activity but he's yeah. also the, the the local constable and yeah. there's this sort of weird situation that he's found himself in which is, yeah. I presume is a is the real situation yeah. in Louisiana is it so tell us about his position the constable is a v- an old office that is somewhere between mayor and sheriff. So it still exists in certain counties in Louisiana. I think a lot of them, they're trying to vote it out because you have a lot of latitude in how you can, what you have to do. There's a certain amount of summonses you have to serve every month. But after that, you're kind of, it's left up to you. The police might ring you up and say, well, there's a brawl down in this bar. Will you just go and check that out? Uh, so you're kind of a, an adjunct to the official sheriff's office. Uh, so you don't have to have a partner. You can have your own car. You can have, uh, you know, your own weapons. And they're delighted if you have your own car. That might actually help you get the job. If you ran for constable and you say comes with own Jeep Cherokee, it'd be oh, fantastic. We don't have to buy him a car. And uh, so that really helps you share a secretary. You might share it with the mayor. Uh, in this case, he shares it with uh, someone who has a car dealership. She also is his secretary. So it's it's a very old office, and I just liked the latitude he had. He didn't really have to report in to anybody. He could just turn off his phone, and he's whatever he does, he's okay until the next election. And the last guy, apparently, who was constable, was just so useless that they were delighted to have this decorated army veteran who looks the part and sounds the part, and he can go into a bar and brawls just break themselves up. So uh, they don't really care what he does, what else he does, so long as... Uh, the town is more peaceful and that is what he manages to do. He keeps everything quiet and then he runs his own little side deals with the crime bosses down in New Orleans. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Owen Colfer, and we're talking about his latest novel, High Fire. And, Owen, let's stay with... We've been talking about Regent's Hook's position yeah. as a constable in Louisiana, and I want to stay with Louisiana, first yeah. of all, because the area where Squibb and Regent's and Vern yeah. are all living is incredibly well-evoked in the book, I well, thought. Thank you. So tell me about... Tell me about the area. Yeah, well, it's it's a very depressed area. A lot of these little towns are kind of dying and uh, like three quarters of them are just shuttered up now. And it's very sad. I, I've never been there, but I did a, a huge amount of research. Um, when I say research, just watching YouTube clips. Uh, and luckily for me, this area is quite well known, Pearl River, because of the Honey Island monster legend, which is a little bit like the Nessie legend. Uh, and the actual legend goes, uh, believe this or not, that a circus train crashed into the swamp, which did happen, and that a gorilla escaped, which did happen. Now, what likely happened to that gorilla was he was eaten by alligators. But the legend goes that he married an alligator and they had a baby monster, and this is the Honey Island monster, which has been seen by you know a lot of people down through the years. And there are tours, Honey Island monster tours, uh, and also uh, there are people who have devoted their lives to writing books and to finding, just like Nessie. Uh, so it, it felt to me... That that that's the perfect place for a dragon to hide at because if he was spotted, no one would believe it. It would be just another Honey Island monster spotting. And so that's the setup. But the area itself, it's mostly a lot. There's a lot of Cajun people there. Um, it's 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 very it's quite poor. As I said, a lot of the, the shops are a lot of the storefronts are closed down. Uh, so it's really that kind of uh, rural America uh, that we would see. If you read the Dave Robichaux uh, novels, um, you would probably be familiar with that or the True Blood TV series. But it just has that kind of uh, atmosphere to it, you know, the swamp thing, monster coming out of the swamp, the, all the gators and uh, all the people in their little canoes, the pirogues as they're called, out on the river, you know, pulling up their crayfish traps and, sorry, traps, and the old guys who just decided to opt out of society out there wearing camouflage and just living in these huts and they're rarely seen and uh, I just love that whole area of mystery because it's a little bit like a little square of the Amazon rainforest but in uh, not in South America and it, it's it's rare on the planet that you can get someone like that that's so close to a major world famous city and yet there are people there who haven't seen anyone in 20 years. Uh, so I, I thought if you were hiding out, you might be you might gravitate to somewhere like this because you can have a little liaison with civilization. You can have a satellite dish and yet you can be pretty much um, off the grid. Now, lucky for me, a lot of these guys who are on the tours to find the Holly Island monsters posted up. You know, there's hours and hours and hours of uh, these little boats going through the feeder tribs in the in the river and going up these tiny tributaries and you know, hacking their way through. It's like an old Tarzan movie. Uh, and I just found that fascinating. Initially, I had thought maybe I would set it up around Loch Ness somewhere, but that whole area is just too big for me. So I like the idea of the heat and the mosquitoes and, the you know, the giant rats and the mangrove swamps. And it just, for me, it was very evocative. And I hope the people of Louisiana will forgive that I, I haven't been there yet. Um, but I will go. Uh, I, I have to go now, really. And, but I'm delighted that the reaction so far is that it does seem in the book that it's real you know it's not it's not invented and, and that's something I've done a few times and I like doing that I like immersing myself in the place so that I feel I, I have been there it'd probably be a little bit sharper if I actually had been there but uh, hopefully it'll do
for this time. Well, you, you incorporate the circus train crash actually yeah. into the story. There's another character, Waxman, yeah. who everybody presumes is one of these old guys that yeah. just lives out yeah. in in the swamp for years. Turns out, we won't get too much away, but he, you know, he's something yeah. else entirely. Which I also liked in that his inclusion sort of hinted at it's not just Vern. There is perhaps yeah. this wider world of yeah. sort of magical stuff out there. Yeah, I hope hopefully. And I was um, people really like Waxman, and we, I've had a lot of pushback against. Yeah, for, I know what, yeah. I know what you're getting <laughs> yeah. at, uh, but. Uh, that is all part of the plan. But it, there is, I think, if I was to do a sequel, which I'd like to do, um, there probably would have to be a wider world. You know, um, I do want to, what I really like about this adventure is it's very contained. You know, it's within five square miles and there's a very small cast of characters. And so for a writer, that makes it n- nice and handy to work on it. And uh, with, like, when I was working on Artemis Fowl, by the end, the, the universe was so big that a lot of the book was spent describing where people were. But this, once you get it out of the way, you know, you can write, go ahead with the action. I, I'm I'm not the kind of writer, and not by choice, because I would love to be this kind of writer, that can spend three or four pages describing the setting. Um, I like to just give you a sentence or two here and there and let your own brain fill in the rest. Uh, so that's why this kind of book is great, in that right at the beginning there are three sections of character description I, I literally tell you this is one guy this is the second guy and this is the third guy I t- give you their backstory and away we go so it's I just it's just that's how I like to operate I, like everyone's caught up we all know where we are and what's happening and let's go and then uh, it just we're off at a pace then until the end of the book you mentioned David Roby's show and I wanted to talk about writers that might have been an influence on the book yeah. because again I you know initially picked this up and saw yeah. adult fantasy novel and thought okay this is going to be some sort of Game of Thrones thing with boobs or whatever yeah. but I picked it up and within three pages I was okay this is this is great this is Elmore Leonard with a yeah. dragon well that's you know? that's the nicest thing you could say to me because I think Elmore Leonard is wonderful or Carl Hyacin would be <laughs> another one I know everyone cites those two like they're the only two funny American writers but they are the best known And but Carl Hyacin he's always down in the swamps with alligators and uh, he has a lot of quirky characters which I really like and uh, Elmore Leonard of course is the king you know so I really like him and even Stephen King as well you know Stephen King has got that kind of down home feeling he can really inhabit an area and give you backstories and make you feel like the people are real. And I, I really love Stephen King. So, and he did a dragon book years ago for kids, actually. But um, yeah, he would have been a big influence. So those guys, Neil Gaiman, I love Terry Pratchett, I love uh, even people like Patricia Highsmith, the noir factor. I really like that. And so this, I mean, this someone asked me to categorize this, and I said it's well, I would say it's dragon noir, which is a new. Although I'm sure it's not new. I'm sure there's another one. But as far as I know, it's uh, it's it's the only dragon noir book. So if you like noir, it's closer to noir. It just happens to have a dragon in it. I want to talk a bit about researching dragon yeah. lore yeah. itself. Um, again, you, to a large extent, obviously invented the history of, yeah. um, of Vern, but... Wyvern, as he yeah. was uh, as he was once known, but there's lots of little sort of hints at a sort of wider idea. There's a sort of vague reference to like the Lampton Worm, for yeah, instance, yeah. in the story. Um, and just to tell me some more about you know sort of digging into dragons, I guess yeah. dragons in in well, I was yeah. going to say in history, but yeah. um, both in history and literature. I had uh, done that actually for the book before this, which was a book called The Fell Twins, and um, I I wanted I had a a baddie in that called Sir Teddy Bleed Him Dry, which is you cannot do that in a, in a book. But in, in a kid's book, they really love that kind of pun. Uh, 
and so Teddy uh, lived in the Scilly Isles. So he's the Duke of Scilly, again, great name. Uh, and he lived on an, an island, one, a fictional island in the Scilly Isles called St. George. And it was called St. George because in the legend, uh, when George St. George killed the dragon, they pushed his body out to sea in Cornwall, even though it happened in Libya, I think. But in one of the legends, and I, in my story then, it floated out to sea, settled on a rock, uh, and became the island of St. George. Uh, so, but while I was doing that, of course, I was looking into the St. George legend, reading reading up about it, where was the dragon actually, and some people say St. George was actually Turkish, some people say he was African, there's like there's a hundred legends. But I just got really interested in that, and so I started looking through dragons in mythology, but the worm, and uh, and then dragons in fiction, and the one thing that came across was that dragons were just seen as very noble creatures, uh, and often very powerful creatures and sometimes very big creatures but the Leonardo da Vinci sketch of the dragon which is the one I refer to he's quite he's not like that uh, he's quite fierce but he's more like a big lion really actually I think he's fighting a lion in the picture uh, so he's not that tall he's maybe seven foot tall and I like that idea because first of all it's easier to hide out if you're little but I just thought if one of these noble dragons had fallen on hard times what would he be like after like a thousand years of just being on the run and I thought he might be like Vern and every now and then when he has a few vodkas he thinks back when he used to be Lord Highfire in the Highfire Eerie uh, and he, he had nobility and people feared him and uh, so it just makes his fall all the greater I think if he'd always been this guy hiding out that's one thing but when you have been when you've tasted that kind of power and your whole family has been wiped out and you're now living in a shack on the bayou, yeah, it does make you a little bit bitter. And so that was something I like to incorporate uh, into his character. And I also like to get into the details of the anatomy of how it works. And there's a lot in there about he has to consume a lot of oil and fat just to restore himself and how he's on the ketogenic diet. It's a lot high fat, low sugar because he's found out that's best for him. And I love little details like that because that is like if you read, uh, I think, Lord of the Rings or... You don't really get details about the physiognomy of a dragon, which so I like to put in to humanize them almost. Now, I love Lord of the Rings, don't get me wrong, and I love Game of Thrones, but this is kind of the little scrappy dragon who didn't, you know, and there's a bit of comedy to it. So, yeah, it's it's just a new iteration of that creature. And uh, if you like the noble dragon, this might this might not be the one for you. <laughs> Although he does get noble, but at the beginning he's quite ignoble, you know, and he's he's quite uh, self-centered and uh, charlish. So, but he gets better by the end. To finish off, can I get you to read us a bit? You can, but I I usually don't read it all, as you can see, as I knock over the microphone because uh, I'm not great at it. But I will I will do my best. <clears throat> so uh, this is the, just the first page, and it's just introducing the dragon Vern to us. Chapter one. Vern did not trust humans, was the long and short of it. Not a single one. He had known many in his life, even liked a few, but in the end, they all sold him out to the angry mob, which was why he holed up in Honey Island Swamp, out of harm's way. Vern liked the swamp okay, as much as he liked anything after all these years. So many years just stretching out behind him like bricks in that old road King Darius put down back in Who Gives a Shit B.C. Funny how things came back out of the blue, like that ancient Persian road. He couldn't remember last week, and now he was flashing back a couple of thousand years, give or take. Vern had baked half those bricks his own self, back when he still did a little blue collar. Nearly wore out the old internal combustion engine. Shed his skin two seasons early because of that bitch of a job. That and his diet. 
No one had a clue about nutrition in those days. Fern was mostly ketogenic now, high fat, low carbs, apart from his beloved breakfast cereals. Keto made perfect sense for a dragon, especially with his core temperature. Unfortunately, it meant the beer had to go, but he got by on vodka. Absolute was his preferred brand, a little high in alcohol, but easiest on the system. So Fern tolerated the swamp. It wasn't exactly glorious, but these weren't exactly the glory days. Once upon a time, he had been Wyvern, Lord Highfire of the Highfire Eyrie, if you could believe that melodramatic bullshit name. Now he was King of Jack's shit in Mudsville, Louisiana. But he'd lived in worse places. The water was cool, and the alligators did what they were told, for the most part. So I've been talking to Owen Colfer. We've been talking about his latest novel, High Fire, which is out now from Joe Fletcher Books. Owen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. No, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.